We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Israel needed a wall built around the city. We need a wall built around our church. And that's what these men are. These elders are ones that stand on the wall for us. As you remember, and I'll, I'll uh, give you just a brief uh, summary of what we've studied in the last few months, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember there was a time because there was an enemy. There was an enemy who fought against what God is doing. And there always will be. Anytime God is for something and working in something, the enemy will always ramp up his, his efforts to try to stop that. But he's a defeated foe. We do not have to worry about that enemy as long as we're walking with Christ. Uh, I have a, something on my, my desk for many years, and it said, uh, a saint on his knees need never retreat. When we're prayerful, our relationship is right with God and we're serving him. We can know the confidence that God is in our work, in our lives, and he will get us through. But if you remember, as they were building that wall that they built in 52 days, around Jerusalem. A wall in the Old Testament was a very strategic thing as far as defense. If you've been there to Israel, you know that those huge stone walls were so valuable. For an army approaching, they could not instantly ride right into the city and easily take over. They had to deal with the wall. There could be people on top of the wall that could, could uh, attack them. Oftentimes, the gate of the city was not straightforward. It was at a right angle or a left angle, and that would slow that army down, and they would have to negotiate that. It would give time for those to be protected. Our elders and our church leaders are on the wall, and just as in uh, Nehemiah's time there in the, the wall of Jerusalem, they stood often with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Well, I want to tell you there's much work to do in the church, isn't there? There's much work to do in the kingdom of God, and that's that trial that you and I are part of that, being called by God into the ministry of reconciliation. That's an amazing thing in the book of Corinthians. God has given to the church the ministry of reconciliation. Now, we know we can't save anyone. We know we can't save ourselves, but he has given to the church. That means he will operate that in us the gifts and the ministry to reconcile people to God. And that is our prayer and our hope and our joy is that people come to know Christ and serve him. But the fact is, although we build the walls by God's power and his, his ability with the trial, we also have a sword in our hand. We have the most important sword for us as believers, and that's the word of God. This is a miracle that we're holding in our laps and I've got in my hand today. To be preserved for 4,500 years, the New Testament for over 2,000 years, there is the truth of God, the standard of his word. That's why we always go back to what does the Bible say? There is the wisdom of God's word with all the answers that we need in our life. I don't know about you, but I need plenty of them. The older I get, I find out I didn't know what I didn't know. Can anybody relate to that? I didn't know what I didn't know. And as the old timers used to say, my mama didn't tell me it was going to be like this. But I found out mama didn't know many things, but we have the standard of God's word. We have the book of wisdom of God's word. This is a book of love. Greatest love stories ever written. For all you that like to read love stories, the greatest ones are in this book. But it's a book of love where God says, I know what I require of you. 
Here's the standard. I know you're unable to do that on your own, but I love you so much, I'm gonna make a way so that you can do it. And this is the greatest book of love that God said, I love you. You are mine. And that's why as we hold a sword in our hands sometimes, God does the fighting for his church. The Old Testament Israel was facing an enemy one day and I loved what God said. He said, you just stand still and see the salvation of your God. You will not need to fight in this battle, God says. I will fight. And that's the way it is for you and me. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah. After the Bible had been lost for 500 years, they found a copy of it in a closet. Can you imagine that? To not have the guidance of God's word. It had been put away. It had been rejected and neglected so long. They found it, brought it back out. And can you imagine also their amazement when they opened up and God said, Israel, I want you to be doing this. And they went, uh-oh. Because they realized they had not done that for so long. But God stirred in the hearts of faithful people. And Ezra was one of them, a scribe who copied the scriptures and he went home and got his house right, and he went to the temple and got the temple right, and he, he, he got things back in the right direction, and that's why we have studied going back to Jerusalem, God bringing his people back. A lot of time had passed, 14 years, between Ezra and Nehemiah, and Nehemiah gets a report of what's going on in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's in a good position. Nehemiah has the job of jobs, he is the cupbearer of the king in another land. And all he has to do is eat and drink before the king, make sure that nobody's trying to kill him. He's an advisor to the king, a confidant. He comes into the king's presence often, and he is taken care of and provided for. But he gets a word and a message of what's going on back in his hometown, and it grieved him because he found out that altars were torn down and the enemy had harmed God's work there. and The wall was not built around the city. It was not safe to live there. And Nehemiah's heart was burdened for Jerusalem. But the test was, would he leave, leave this very comfortable situation when he's got it made? Second in command, really, to the king as far as intellect and knowledge and intelligence and, and the relationship of valued, trusted people in the land? Or would he turn and ask for permission to go back and to help Jerusalem that lay much of, the, of it in ruins? You remember the story. He went in before the king, and the king said, why are you sad? I've never seen you sad. And, and Nehemiah had to make a choice. Am I going to tell the king that I'm a Jew and that I've got the heart for my Jewish people and ask him a daring uh, petition that I could leave here? Now, if you were the king's wife and you knew Nehemiah was drinking the food and eating the food, drinking the drink before he drank it to protect your husband, would you want him to leave? If you knew that you had a trusted official there that, that would lay his life on the line for your husband, you want him to stay in place, don't you? I remember studying that as Corey and Chris have joined me during this, this series and uh, we talked about one of those Nehemiah prayers. You remember what the Nehemiah prayers are? That's when you don't have time to pray very long. Oh, Lord. And he just reaches up to God real quickly and asks, God, help me. 
we saw God stir in his heart. The king gave him favor to go back to Israel, to Jerusalem. The king wrote a blank check and said, I'll pay for anything you need. I'll give you an army to guide you and protect you on your way back. And just in a miraculous way that God turned circumstances to get Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. I want to remind you, Nehemiah is not a priest. He's not a prophet. He is a governor. He is a politician. Can there be a good politician? I'm not, I'm not going to go there tonight, but I'll leave that all up to your, 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 uh, your answer. This is a good politician, a good governor over God's people. I'm going to read with you the last chapter, parts of it, of the book of Nehemiah. And I want to preface this by saying uh, there's some hard things in here. But I want to ask you the question, for the good, great things in your life, are they worth protecting? My goodness, how good it is to see these children here. I love the children of this service. God bless you for bringing them. I love these little ones. Thank you. All over here, bring them. Bring the babies. I'll turn the microphone. I'll get Preston to turn it up. Are they worth protecting? Are they worth fighting for the things that are good in our country, in our land, and in our churches? They are, aren't they? Well, when we have good, strong things that we need to protect, sometimes we have to make good, strong stands. And that's what Nehemiah is going to do tonight. I titled this Cleaning House. Now, my wife's not here, so I can say this. Wait a minute. Are you listening online tonight? I'm in trouble if I is, but... I'm not really one that enjoys cleaning house, but I love a clean house. Does that make sense? All you ladies are saying, typical man. You want a clean house, but you don't want. No, I'll help any way we need to. What do we say a lot of times? Spring cleaning. After winter, we have spring cleaning. That's where you clean underneath the carpet, right? Well, it is cleaning house time in Jerusalem. And we'll see exactly how that happens. There's five basic things in this chapter that needed to be dealt with. It's not easy to deal with tough things, but I'm thankful. These men that are being candidates for elders, they're going to have to deal with tough things. These elders that are here tonight, they deal with tough things on behalf of Denton Bible Church that you and I don't even know about. Be thankful and be grateful and pray for them and, and honor them. Five different things are going to be having to be taken care of in this chapter. And the first one is there's enemies in the land. They're not an enemy because of the color of skin they have. I want to make that clear. The language they speak or because they have more money or less money. They're not an enemy because of cultural or, or a differences that God makes. They're an enemy because they reject God. They worship false gods. They have false religion. And they want to harm and attack God's people. That's what makes them an enemy. So there's enemies in the land that need to be dealt with. There's enemies in the house of God. Can that ever happen? Jude tells us about some that sneak in unaware. Wouldn't Satan want to do that? Would Satan want to come and knock on the door in a red suit with a pitchfork and horns and a pointed tail and say, I'm the devil and I'm here to hurt your church? No, he wants to come in looking pretty good. In fact, the Apostle Paul said he wants to have his ministers transformed as angels of light. He wants them in the pulpit. He wants them to look like the good guys. How do you know? They don't live like the good guys. 
They don't honor Christ like the good guys. John the Apostle said, you'll know them if they confess Jesus has come in the flesh. They live like Christ did when he walked here on the earth. So there's enemies in the land. There's enemies in the house of God. <coughs> Excuse me. The storehouse was empty. They were to tithe in the Old Testament. We don't have a tithe in the New Testament. We have ice chests. No, I'm just kidding. We have, we have the uh, call of God to return to God for the work of ministry. And so don't let anybody put a number on that. I, I'm, I'm convinced we're supposed to give 10% plus in the New Testament, tithes and offerings. That's between you and God. Have you ever been in a church before that didn't pass a plate? Some of you might have, but how, how many of you have? Those boxes on the you have? Good, good, good. Those boxes on the back there. Uh, and God has provided for Denton Bible uh, for all of these years. Very, very grateful for that. But the storehouse was empty. The people had built their own houses, but they hadn't taken care of the temple. And God had to deal with that. Thirdly, the Sabbath had been broken. They weren't going to church. They weren't honoring God's day of worship. And finally, at the end of this, they had wrong marriages. You want to mess us up a society, have wrong marriages. I'll reiterate again, it wasn't because they married someone of a different race or a different language. They married people of a different religion, those that would worship false gods and idols and turn them away from the true God of Israel. So in the beginning of this chapter, it says, on that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people. And there was found written in that, in it, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the, the assembly of God. Now, one of the important things about this is to remember when Israel was coming out of Egypt, they needed to pass through part of the land of Edom, part of the land of, of, of the Moabites, the Ammonites. And all they asked for was, could we pass through the land? We don't want to even drink any water. Could we eat some of the things that are growing there? We'll, we'll pay for anything. We'll take care of it. But could we pass through this land? Otherwise, they'd have to go back and go way around. And the Moabites and the Ammonites said, absolutely not. You cannot pass through here. We will not let you pass through here. And God said, Israel, turn back and go around. I'll handle these people. And God even said, you don't have to fight against these people because I will deal with them face to face. I don't know about you, but I don't want that to have to happen. Here, God said, an Ammonite or a Moabite will not come into the congregation of God. Even up to the 10th generation, it says in one place. Uh, you may say, well, what about Ruth? She was a Moabitess. And what God's talking about here is they cannot remain an Ammonite or a Moabite. They must be willing to relinquish all that they followed, all their fathers did, and turn to God and repent of their sins, their father's sins, and say, would you receive us into the camp? So they opened up the Bible and they found out it shouldn't be going on this way. Can you remember some of the things when you became a Christian that the first time you read them in the Bible, you said, I can't believe that. I didn't know. Paul did. Paul said, I didn't know that I shouldn't covet until I read in the scripture, thou shalt not covet. And it's the same thing. Israel had been without the Bible for so long. And they opened it up and said, Oh, no, God said, don't let these foreign 
people foreign because of their religion and their lack of faith and trust in God, don't let them in the camp. David later in the New Testament said, a little leaven, leaven is like yeast. I'm such a, I'm such a cook. I'm such a, a baker. Uh, my, my friend and I, when I was in high school, were making some, some kind of muffins. And uh, if you cook, you're, you're going you're gonna, to uh, think I'm pretty naive, and I am. But we had all the ingredients, and we put them in there, and we watched them. She had an oven that you could turn the light on and watch it cook. And so we were watching that cook, and these muffins just rose like they were supposed to. And we're thinking, man, how cool this is. It's going to be so good. You know what happened? Those muffins exploded. I mean, they blew apart all over the inside of that oven. It was something about baking soda or baking powder. I'm not sure which one. We put the wrong one in it and had a small war inside of the oven. Well, leaven is a yeast, a picture of that. And God said, a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. It can mess up the whole lump. So God's warning, we can't let those that we know reject God, fight against God, do not follow God. We cannot let them remain among the people of God. So they said, we need to do something about that. And it said, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, they hired Balaam against him to curse him, verse 2. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Was that a hard thing? Because they'd probably been living together for a while. But sometimes we have to do the hard thing because it's the right thing. So that was the first thing as they opened up the Bible and said, you know what? We've got to go back to what the Bible says. We've got to do... Even though the consequences might be great, we have to do what God says. The second one's found in verse 4. There's enemies in the house of God. Now, prior to this, Elisha the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, we all have relatives. Does anyone have any good Thanksgiving Day dinner relative stories? Uh, don't say them out loud, please. All you have to mention is religion or politics, and uh, doesn't matter how well the turkey has been cooked or the dressing or the cranberry sauce, uh, the, sometimes the discussion is on. But what had happened here is there were relatives that were not supposed to be in the house of God. And that's a tough thing, isn't it? It's a tough thing to deal with some that we may be related to. I've often found people very staunch on a certain matter until it came to someone they were related to. And that's what's happening here. He said, they had prepared, uh, said, uh, Elisha, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils. In other words, he uses one of the storehouses next to the temple of God, and he just made a little uh, quarters there, like a mother-in-law suite for this guy to live in. But it just so happened he was a relative to one of the enemies that's been fighting the whole book of Nehemiah against God's people. 
But during all this time, verse 6, I was not in Jerusalem. Verse 7, I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. And guys, look what he did. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order. They cleansed the rooms. I returned the tent utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Nehemiah was serious about the house of God. Can there be things in our house that need to be removed? That's between you and God. Oftentimes when I speak to men in conferences, I ask them, is there anything in your closet? Is there anything underneath your bed? Is there anything in your garage? Is there anything in your shed? Is there anything under the seat of your pickup that if you knew Jesus was coming to your house today, you'd need to go clean those things out? You'd hate for your wife to find them. And I encourage him, go get rid of them. Go get rid of them. Here in the house of God, one of the enemies of God had just moved in. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, but a good, strong, faithful leader did something about it. He went and got all his stuff and threw it out on the curb. There's a time to clean house. And so we've seen two things so far. There's enemies in the land. There's enemies in the house of God. And then the next thing about verse 10. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away to each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. And all Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Now, in a New Testament church like you're sitting here tonight, we don't ask you what you give to the Lord. That's between you and him. And you truly, when you put something in that ice chest for a building, you put it in um, for a missionary, you put it in that box back there for the general fund of the church so that we can have a building, a nice place to, to worship with heating and cooling. Do you know what some people of the world would give for what we have sitting here tonight? Oh, folks, we've got a lot of the people in our town that, and the towns represented here that are struggling right now. And I hope your heart goes out to them. I know we can't bring everyone to our homes, but do what you can because there's many people that would love all the comforts that you and I have. My wife and I were coming home Thanksgiving evening. I took a little bit different route coming to our home. We moved about four months ago. I still have a propensity to drive to Aubrey, and we don't live there anymore. Uh, but I've only made it there all the way once. But we were driving home. She said, why'd you come this way? I don't know. And driving down the road, I saw boxes and papers and things flying up in the air and a car running through them. I thought... A truck must have lost all of its uh, cargo, and this man ran into it, and I swerved and missed all of that paper and boxes and things and got around and tried to follow the car because it was messed up and make sure he, he or she was okay. I took my wife and our little two-year-old grandson home, and I said, I'm going back up there. When I got there, police were everywhere. 
a homeless man had pushed his cart out into the lane and been run over. It was impossible for anybody to see him. But I want to tell you, I was one second from being that car. One second. And I just want to tell you, those things reignite the love of God inside of me. They reignite my passion for ministry. They reignite my love for those people on the side of the road. I don't judge them. I don't know how they got there. And I know some of them, you know, they do things not maybe honestly. But I want to tell you something. It's cold out there. How much did you eat on Thursday? I'd eaten about 5,000 calories. I wonder if that man had eaten anything that night. And now I pray he's in heaven. So I'm confronted with the fact that are there things in my house that need to be cleaned up? And I'm not just talking about our home. My wife's a great housekeeper, and, and uh, I try to help some. But do we have anything in here? We got anything inside this house, our hearts, any attitudes or thoughts or prejudices? We have anything we haven't forgiven somebody. You may say, I will not forgive them until they repent. You're not like Jesus. Because Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They haven't repented yet, for they know not what they do. And Matthew, he said, when you stand, forgive. Not in, when they repent. I used to be just like that. I will forgive them when they come and say they're sorry. We've got to be willing to forgive before they say they're sorry. So Israel very literally has enemies in the land. They have enemies in the camp, in the, in the house. And Israel had not put God's temple and his, his things first, the ministry. They put themselves first. They built some nice houses for themselves, but they hadn't taken care of the temple of God. So he said in verse 11, I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and restored them. Verse 14 is an interesting prayer that Nehemiah prays. Remember me for this, O my God. Do not blot out my loyal deeds, which I performed for the house of my God and its services. <coughs> Excuse me. The next thing that Israel, as they opened up the book and said, oh, no. God had commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Saturday. It was a day of rest for the Israelites. We're not underneath the Sabbath in the New Testament. Jesus changed those things. He met with the apostles on Sunday, the first day of the week. We are not under the law of the Old Testament, the ceremonial aspect of the law, the sacrificial aspect of the law. We are not under. Some of the moral aspect of the law still applies to us. Thou shalt not kill, that still applies to us. But you and I are, are not commanded to bring a pigeon or a turtle dove or a bull or a calf every time we sin and, and sacrifice it before the priest. You know why we don't have to do those sacrifices anymore? Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that was propitiation for our sin. Payment in full. When God looks at you, you may say, Mike, I've talked with people recently. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. I don't think God for, could forgive me. I just point him to the cross because Jesus can forgive. And he can wash us and make us clean like we've never. You know the word justified? 
That is actually a legal term, like a judge would bring a gavel down and say, not guilty. Not guilty, not only I forgive you of what you did, justified means you are as guiltless as if you never did anything. And that is what Christ does for us, justified, just as if you had never sinned. Do you think a drug addict needs to hear that? Do you think the people in prison need to hear that? Do you think some people that are oppressed and, and right now that are struggling with, with panic attacks and anxiety and, and uh, depression, are, are you dealing with folks like that? Are you struggling with that? You come let us visit with you because many, many people are. We're all in this together. But do you think they need to hear that? You can be forgiven. I was told as I visited a man in one of the major correctional facilities here in Texas, I had to go through every kind of search you can think of. I mean, I just didn't realize what it would take to get in there to visit this man. And I was told that most of the people that are incarcerated, when you talk to them about Christ, don't believe they can be forgiven. And the great message of Christianity is, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. But the gift of God is eternal life. Wages of sin is death. If we stay in that, that's where we're headed. Some people say, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? How could a loving God and a righteous God send anybody to heaven? Because we've all sinned and come short. But that verse says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. We're about to go into Christmas time. A gift is something you give in the name of Jesus because of what he's done for us. They don't earn it. They don't buy it. They don't inherit it. A gift is given. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Some people say, that sounds so simple. It is. When I talk to little children at funerals, I always ask permission when I'm doing a funeral of the families. Will there be little children there? And they say, yes. I say, may I speak to them for about one minute? And I rehearse John 14 to them. Uh, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go, and I ask those children, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He went back to heaven. What do you think he's been doing all this time? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me that where I am, you may be also. And I tell those children, that loved one up here that knows Jesus, that grandmother, that granddad, whoever that is that, that is there in that coffin that loved Jesus, Jesus has been preparing a place for them and he's got it ready. That's what he's been doing. And I always like to remind them, did you ever play that game maybe with children or grandchildren? How much do you love me? You remember that? I love you this much. and Isn't it fun? And then they say, I love you this much. But in just a little while, the child, you, you know, figures it out and they say, how much do you love me? And the little child goes, this much. And you start crying. Oh, no, you love me more than that. But how does the, the game end? I love you this much. Well, that's what Jesus did. Calvary is Jesus saying, I love you. This much. When he spread his arms wide, he couldn't spread them any wider. So if you feel like you can't be forgiven, it's too late, it's too far gone, don't listen to those lies. Jesus can make a change here tonight. I told you of a boy 
25 years ago that watched a man die in our church from an accident working. He was only about 18 at the time. He couldn't say a word. I put my arms around him. I said, Jeremy, God loves you. I wish you wouldn't have seen anything like this, but because he let you see it, he's got a purpose for your life. 25 years ago, Jeremy called me on the phone about three weeks ago and said, Mr. Spencer, I need to talk to you. I said, sure. And Jeremy said, Mr. Spencer, I don't know if I died, I'd be with Jesus. Do you want to know? Yes, sir. And he confessed Jesus as his Lord and believed what the scripture said about him. And he prayed a prayer to ask Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. He's coming to our house next week. Lives in Odessa, Texas. That's because Jesus says, I love you this much. But to see those good things happen, sometimes we've got to clean house. We've got to clean our churches. We've got to clean our countries. Is there anything needs to change about our country? There's so many good things about America. So many good things. But is it true we need God to bless us again? And we need to ask him continually for that. Israel did too. They had enemies in the land. They had enemies in the house of God. They had not been careful to take care of the temple. They had not brought the, the money and the possessions and things back so others, the poor, could have something to eat. The temple could be taken care of. We may need to do the same. And then the next one, we're almost through. The Sabbath had been broken. God had said, in six days I made the earth, and on the seventh day I want you to rest. Now, God didn't rest because he was tired. Because the scripture says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. You and I can be a whole lot like God, but I want to confess to you, I'm not like God because I sleep. I need sleep. The older I get, I need a little bit more. We kept our three, two-and-a-half-year-old grandson the last few days. I need more sleep. But God said, I'm going to give you an example that you do as I did. I want you to have a day of rest. Do you know who is famous for not having a day of rest? Mamas. Because you mamas are so good at taking care of families and all the business and the work. But dads, husbands, mamas need rest. You know who else is famous for not resting well? Preachers preachers i don't need to rest it's time to do the work of the ministry uh, i want to tell you we all need sabbath rest not the old testament seventh day saturday we worship a risen savior on sunday but we need rest recreation recreation god made us to be able to be refreshed and i know many people burn out and these elders right here, there will be a temptation for you. Curtis, has your, has your life uh, work changed a little bit since you became an elder? <laughs> a little bit, he says. No, that man and the rest of those elders serve tirelessly on our behalf. They stand on the wall for you and me. And there will be a temptation to work too much. But honor your wife, honor your family, your children, grandchildren, love them, love your church, and make sure that you rest because Israel hadn't done that. And one of the things God had commanded them, don't work on Sunday. I grew up in a town of 5,000, uh, a little bit further in West Texas, and uh, 
There is no way in the world we would ever have little league practice on a Wednesday night. You know why? People went to church. There's no way in the world we would have any kind of recitals or practices of any sports on Sunday. Certainly no tournaments and no games. You know why? People went to church and people honored that and they wouldn't break that. When I went to college in 1978, I went to a grocery store. Now, all you younger people, are going to, this, you're not going to know what I'm talking about. But we had Texas Blue Laws. Texas Blue Laws, and we could not buy anything out of that grocery store except milk and bread and staples and things that are necessities because they didn't want people working on Sunday so they could go to church and be home with their families. How far have we come? And I'm not trying to be political in any way. I'm just saying every way that we can be careful, we need to go to church and honor God on Sunday. We need to rest. You may say, I have to work all day Sunday because I'm in the ministry or I'm a nurse or I'm a doctor. Find some day of the week. <clears throat> Maybe in the military. Find some day of the week that you can set aside to rest. Nehemiah prays again in verse 22. I command the Levites that they should purify themselves, come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also, remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. <coughs> As we close tonight, there's one more thing. The very first institution that God ordained after breathing the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. Adam was a shell of a man created by God, but it was not until God, the breath of God, came into Adam's nostrils that he became a living soul. And when he became a living soul, Adam had a God-placed desire inside of his heart and he didn't even know what it was. I would imagine that many of us here tonight, especially these young people, have God-placed desires inside of their hearts. They don't know what they are yet. I have many people come to me and I'm privileged to, to meet with a lot of people that say I'm headed toward the ministry. I say, what part of ministry? They say, I don't know but they have a desire placed inside their lives to serve Christ somehow. They just don't know what it is yet. Well, Adam had a God-placed desire for something that he didn't know what it was. You know what I'm referring to? Eve. He needed a wife. He needed a woman. The world needed women, but there hadn't been any of them made yet. And the Bible teaches us that Adam was just scooped out of the ground, right? I say that often. Us men are dirt balls. We started out that way, and we've been carrying on the tradition ever since. But when God put Adam to sleep and took that rib out of his side and closed that rib back up, the first operation we know of, wasn't that cool? It said he took that rib, and the Scripture says he fashioned a woman. That word is like a wise master builder designing a beautiful creation, a masterpiece. <coughs> That's why me and you and I are commanded to treat these ladies in honor and respect. Do you know that Jesus elevated women all the way through the New Testament? I can't believe anybody that teaches the roles of men and women in a conservative traditional church. We are complementarian, that the men are going to answer to God first. As Tommy taught the other day, women are not supposed to teach men, they're supposed to raise men. I thought that was great to put it that way. We have an order. 
Doesn't make anybody any better or any worse than anybody else. But when we teach that, we get called bigots, we get called chauvinists, we get called all kinds of things. Well, Jesus said, yeah, when they say that about you, realize they're not really saying it about you, they're saying it about me. But some of us men have given them a little bit of fuel for the fire because we are to lead our families and be the provider and protector of our families does not mean that we're a boss. It does not mean that we rule over them in harshness in some way. In fact, we're told to love our wives as Jesus loved the church and he gave himself up for it. When God fashioned Eve and he brought Eve to Adam, you know the first word he said, now. He saw something so beautiful that was going to fulfill a desire that he had inside of him that he didn't know he had. God put it there. And I'm not just talking about physical beauty, but, but you ladies, that's why you do look a lot better than us. You know that, don't you? You look a lot better than us guys because God made you to. But he fashioned a woman. And you and I as men are supposed to be lifting these ladies up and honoring them, treating them like the queen of our homes, the queen of our households. That's what Christ did. But God's word tells us, Mary in the faith, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I know there's often times that a girl says, but I, I go to church and I love Jesus and the guy I'm dating doesn't, but I'm going to bring him. That's not going to happen. The guy says, well, I know she's never been in church and she doesn't, she doesn't like me going to church really, but, but with me being around her, I'm going to rub off on her and it's going to change her life. It's, it's not going to happen. It's going to go the other way. God tells us, don't intermarry with not a race, not a country, not a language. He's not talking about that. Don't intermarry with unbelievers. I've done many, many weddings throughout the years, and there's times when some of them sneak by. They tell me they're a believer. They can tell me part of a testimony, but it turns out they're not. And many, many times that marriage is in big, big trouble because they're, they're unequally yoked. And that's what Israel had done. Verse 23, as we close, those days I saw also Jews that had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. You remember what we read? An Ammonite and a Moabite doesn't come into the, the congregation of God. They did it anyway. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod. None of them was able to speak in the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. It is not a racial thing. It is, it is a religion thing. They had married people that didn't love and follow God, and they passed on false religion, false gods and idol worship to their wives, husbands, and to their children. And I want you to see verse 25. Is it worth protecting your home if somebody's trying to pump something in there to hurt your children? I told you before about some godly Christian meek little women that turn into mama bear if you mess with their kids. I love that. Dad, is it worth standing guard at the gate so something can't get in your home to hurt your wife or your children? Would you have to do some drastic things sometime to protect them? So did Nehemiah. 
Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah was serious. That's Old Testament retribution and Old Testament correction. I just want to encourage you. Support the churches that are standing firm. I'm so grateful and so thankful for many people that are coming to Denton Bible. You know where they're coming from? All over the country. I teach a class at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and we've got new couples there all the time. I say, we're welcome. We welcome you. How'd you get here, and what are you here for? We heard Denton Bible stands for the Bible. We could not live where we've lived before. We could not worship where we worshiped before. We came to Texas because we heard of a church that's standing on God's word. I believe in making a big deal of what God does, and that's something God does. So we welcome them, and we're thankful. But to remain a church where God's doing big things, we've got to have men like this. It'll stand on the wall with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they have to make some hard decisions sometimes. They make some strong stands sometimes. But praise God, they're doing it to protect God's people. Ezra and Nehemiah, been quite a couple books. God got the wall rebuilt. He got the temple rebuilt. He got the people's lives rebuilt. It's hard to go back. When you pass laws that are not good, it's hard to get them undone, isn't it? But God's able to restore the years the locust has eaten up. Well, you don't know my marriage. We've done this and this, and I think it's too far gone. No, nothing's too far gone with Jesus. He can go back in time. He's the only time traveler. Did you know that? He can go back in time and start over, and he can fix anything. I want you to notice, before we pray, the last phrase of this book, though. Ezra and Nehemiah, they have led 50, Zerubbabel, they have led 50,000 people back to Jerusalem. God says, I'm going to give you a do-over. Praise God for do-overs. But I want you to remember, this governor, he wasn't a preacher, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a scribe like Ezra was, he was just an ordinary man that had a heart to be valiant for the truth and for God. He says in verse 30, Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times. That was the wood to burn on the altar so it would never burn out. And for the first fruits. And then Nehemiah prays one of those Nehemiah prayers. They're not long. But he says, remember me, oh my God, for good. May we pray the same. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, a starting over with your people for your sake and for your name. It wasn't for their righteousness or for their great revival or repentance. It was because you had mercy on them. And Lord, I want to thank you for starting over in my life. Oh, God, 
I've failed you so many times, but you are so gracious to forgive and to cleanse and, and, and encourage and, and, and let me not be beaten down by the guilt of that sin, but lift me back up and get me excited about what's going to happen tonight and tomorrow in your church and in this world. And I pray for Jeremy, and I ask these people here tonight to pray for Jeremy that might come to visit this week, and may he have a brand new life in Christ. And maybe there's someone here tonight, Lord, that, that has never trusted in you, and, and you're ready to save them. You're ready to give them the knowledge that everything's okay, to justify them in your sight, and to start over just like we saw in your Bible tonight. Would you give them the courage, and it takes courage, maybe to come forward here tonight after we are through. I'll stay here and pray with anyone, or speak to one, to Jared, somebody here, Joel, somebody we have elders here in the room. Speak to those elders or these two new men here and just tell them, I need Jesus. And it'll be a privilege for us to pray with you. How about us that are saved? You've known the mercy of God. He has given you a rebirth and a, you know you're as sure for heaven as if you're already there. But you need any house cleaning? I do. Turn to him tonight, and you'll find him ready. He'll be waiting, and he is able to make all things new. Father, I thank you for using Ezra and Nehemiah, those faithful ones, to be valiant for you. And now I pray, Lord, uh, committing Chuck and Steve into your hands, and we as an evening service, that we would lift these two men up, their wives, and all of the elders and their families as they stand on the wall for us. In Jesus' name we pray.